Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran from Tom's Big Spiders. To kick this one off, I received a comment on my YouTube channel. It looks like just about 24 hours ago. So hopefully this is good response time. Anyway, I just again want to thank folks that listen to the podcast that have been coming over and dropping comments on the YouTube videos. I see them much, much more quickly that way because that's, again, the the majority of my comments and questions are coming from YouTube right now. And it allows me to just kind of go into my back end, my YouTube studio and answer, find them and answer them much more quickly than say bebopping along to Instagram, Facebook, emails. I'm like desperately behind. Again, for those of you who've been around for a while, this is my busy time year with reports and my job I teach but I'm a special education teacher so this time of year we're doing a lot of reports annual reviews I'm doing a lot of testing which requires writing rather lengthy reports so my time is very very limited and I've been bringing a lot of work home lately because there's been even more of it this year so I apologize in advance if it takes me a while to get back to people it's just unfortunately the nature of the beast this time of the year so anyway back to the question or comment and I'm, I'm only going to deal with this briefly because I think my whole message kind of answers my thoughts on this. Tom, I need your feedback on this. It's really bothering me. Maybe in a podcast, there's a YouTuber that has lost, I don't know how many animals, some mature males. I will admit males just die at the end of their life cycle, but some are young females and it's honestly bothering me. Simply put, he said one of his on one of his videos, I don't think of tarantulas like dogs or cats. I'm sad, but not like a dog or cat. Everyone is telling him not to beat himself up. But when is enough enough? Female tarantulas I would love to have die mysteriously, and he shrugs it off and it drives me nuts. If I lost one of my females, I would do everything in my power to find the source of the problem, not just be like, oh, no, that sucks, moving on. Why? Who does that? So this was from CJ Walker. Hello, CJ. Um, <laughs> I share your frustration, buddy. I've actually covered this in previous topics where we talk about tarantula deaths. And one of my biggest issues that I've found, especially on YouTube, and I think there's a reason why, is folks that lose animals and they put up these videos, they get the sympathy from everybody and they're just kind of like, oh, well, animals die and they move on. Now, do animals die? Yep. We, we've, what do they say? One of the true constants in life is death. You know, everybody dies at some time. However, when you have an animal with a life expectancy of 15 to 20 years that dies as an immature female, yes, I agree. That should be something you're asking yourself some questions about. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of contributing factors to this. There's a reason why YouTube, the majority of hobbyists out there, and unfortunately, I'm sometimes included in this one because, you know, you're just massed together. The majority of serious hobbyists out there say YouTube is not the place to go for a tarantula husbandry advice. Honestly, anybody that knows how I started off, it was not YouTube. I didn't want anything to do with YouTube for just that reason. I was doing articles on my website and I wanted to put a place together. People could come for accurate information that they could read it that, you know, in some cases I've had people go, Hey, is it okay if I print it out? Yes, absolutely. If it makes it easier for you, but YouTube has not had a good reputation over the years, especially if you go on places like I spent years on arachna boards. I've been on there for a long, long time. And that was a common, you know, a, a consensus among the majority of people on there that you don't go to YouTube for your tarantula husbandry information. And it's because a lot of the people on there don't know what they're doing. That's the long and short of it. It's I've mentioned before, and again, I don't want this to be bashing YouTube because I think there's some good to be found on it. There's some great channels out there. You know, my buddy from Mark from Mark's Tarantulas, Garries, a lot of the Nature Tarantulapedia. A lot of great channels out there that I enjoy watching. Those are just a few. And I, I know after I get done doing this, I'll realize I forgot to shout out some people that I really, truly enjoy and respect what they're doing. But there are ones out there where you can tell the keepers know exactly what they're doing. They get the animals. They're breeding them. They're successful with them. And then there's other ones where you can tell it's kind of just like, oh, look, at it. it's a tarantula. Hey, guys, check it out. So cool. And then they die. Or we get situations, and I mentioned this, where an individual that started a successful channel got so many animals that she was losing them right and left, and then pretty soon ended up closing the channel because she was getting some grief about it. And with the smaller channels, here's the issue, and here's where I, I really don't like the dynamic of YouTube, and I've seen it happen with me, and it bothers me. If you have a big enough channel, people root for you like they would a sports team almost like you can do no it's just weird it's not oh my gosh this person's got great information it's I like the personality I like it's so like people when you hear people defend actors they like when they say something abysmal in the news and people go I don't care I love that actor it's kind of that kind of thing they, def they rush to defend you and when you get a big enough audience 
the audience that doesn't – a lot of times with these channels, the audience doesn't know a lot about the hobby except what they are learning through this YouTuber. So as far as they know, this person's a tarantula god. They know everything they're doing. They're correct. So when something dies, their reaction is to immediately defend them. And the problem is the voices of reason that will come on and say, hey, this isn't a good thing. You should be trying to figure out what happened to it. They get either you know drowned out or completely attacked by the followers. And I've mentioned before that I've had this happen on my own channel. Luckily, not often. I think the majority of people I attract are in the hobby already, getting into the hobby and serious about it. I don't get too many of those because just I don't think I'm one of the more entertaining channels out there. I know people say that I am, but I don't really believe that I am. And I think I'm entertaining if you enjoy tarantulas and you're looking for good information. But the average Joe Schmo off the street, the best example I can give is my kids at school will go on my channel and they'll be like, oh, that's really cool. However, have you seen this guy? And name off one of the big wigs out there that has the more entertaining channel. Yeah, he's that guy's fun. So I think I avoid a lot of this, but I have had instances where I have done something that somebody has called me out on and somebody, you know, one of my followers or subscribers has, has rushed on to defend me. And it's like, no, that, there's no defense for that. I screwed up. Ain't nothing, I, I want to make it sound like there were big deals, but there were there was stuff I, I, I don't do everything correctly. That's good. And I, one of the cool things about doing the videos and stuff is I'll go back and rewatch videos and I'll critique them myself. I'll go through and go, I screwed up here. Or I should have done this here. Or there was a chance for an escape there. It's one of the fun things about it is I have you know that visual testimony to what I did, and I can go back and revisit it. So, unfortunately, in my case with my subscribers, I think they're pretty good about not doing that. But we can all think of some channels out there where things get screwed up. I it drives me nuts sometimes because I've I've actually limited the amount of YouTube videos I'm watching now because a I'm at a point where. I have enough to do on my own, and I just I I used to like going out and watching them for entertainment purposes. Sometimes, every once in a while, there are certain you know go to places like if Gar is a species I don't have, I'll go see how Gar's got it because I know I can trust his stuff. There are other folks out there I'll check out, but more often than not, I'm not watching them for entertainment purposes because what I will do is stumble on a channel where something like this happens. And I have to bite my tongue because there's no point in going forward. There's no point in saying anything. I just, I'm going to get jumped on. I'm going to look like a jerk. And quite frankly, I'm not the YouTube police. So it's just, I spare myself the frustration. But yes, I do believe, CJ, that people should be asking questions. I, when I had that spat of deaths a couple winters ago because of the bad substrate, I was killing myself over it. I almost stepped away from the Tom's Big Spider stuff because I honestly felt like a hypocrite because if I can't keep things alive in my own collection, who the heck am I to go out there and tell people what to do? It bothered me greatly. It bothered me. I didn't care if I lost a $10 spider or if I lost a $200 spider and I lost two $200 spiders. It didn't matter. It was, these are animals that I'm supposed to be caring for and it bothers me deeply when something goes wrong and they end up ill and they die and I can't figure out the cause. Now, the sad truth is a lot of times you won't figure out the cause but to step away from a situation like that and just go, eh, well, you know what happens? I don't like that line of thinking. And I believe I did a whole podcast on this probably a year and a half ago or so about that very same idea that you need to ask yourself some questions. Does it mean you beat yourself up to the point where you lose total confidence in your ability to keep spiders? No. And I have seen that happen where people get so obsessive over it, they're like, I'm never going to keep another one because I couldn't keep this one alive. And that I don't think that's going overboard, but I do think there should be questions anytime something dies. Now, unfortunately, the other thing about YouTube is you've got subscribers. They're watching you. If you put that video up, I, I think there's, you know, in some cases people put it up, in rare cases they put it up because they're hoping to get feedback. In other cases, it, it comes across more as a sympathy thing. People go on, oh, I'm so sorry. You're such a good keeper. And I think all that kind of comes together and kind of reinforces that keeper, whoever the YouTuber is, that, oh, I guess I really didn't do anything that bad. And uh, I don't know. It's it's not my thing. I mean, I put a couple deaths up there more so because like one of them, I had the avicularia one where the avicularia literally blew off two of its legs. I still to this day can't figure out what the heck happened. It was great. The conclusion was fine. Boom. I find it dead bleeding out with two legs ripped off and I still to this day can't figure out what happened to it. That was me reaching out. Has anybody seen anything like this before? When I had the impaction with my parvulus, e-parvulus, I put it up because I wanted to hear from more keepers. And that was a situation where more people came by and said, yes, I experienced the exact same thing. So it was more documenting it. I, I actually, the, the oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm sure you did everything. Those kind of make me uncomfortable because I always blame myself. Like somewhere like that, Eparvulus, did I not keep it correctly? Did I keep it too dry? Did that cause the impaction? Was it something I fed it? That eats away at me. And I think that's the difference between people that are serious keepers and serious into the hobby and folks that it's like you said, you know, 
Are they the same as dogs? For some people, they are. They absolutely are. In in my case, I obviously cuddle with my dogs more than I do my spiders, if I'm being honest. That doesn't mean that I take the deaths any less seriously. Let's put it that way. So, CJ, I believe, unfortunately, it's the nature of the beast with YouTube. You're going to find that. Even there's been situations where I've come up and said stuff in videos and beat myself up and people have come to defend me. I'm like, no, I'm not looking to get defended. I'm calling myself out for something I did wrong. That's... what was it? Seed Lividus rehousing I did where I tried the flood method. It was a debacle. I put it up because a lot of people had asked me to try the flood method and I had said I had bad experiences with it. But I felt like an idiot because I never should have done it because I knew it didn't work most of the time, at least for me. I didn't have good luck in it and it made for a sloppy situation. It probably stressed me. No, probably the spider was stressed out. It was a terrible situation. I put that up there because I did kind of want to be admonished. I wanted people, I don't mind so much when people go on, man, that was really dumb. You're right. So, I think that's going to be the nature of the beast. If you're into YouTube, you're going to see a lot of this. You know, I've called before with people, it stinks because you'd love to just go, well, we need to just kind of step up and speak out when somebody says something like this and point out that there's an issue. But I'll be honest with you, depending on the size of the YouTuber, it's not even worth your time. It's just going to end in frustration when you point out something that's, you know, obviously a truth like, hey, there's something wrong if you're just losing, you know, sub-adult females all the time that's a very valid point. But when you get shot down by all the sycophants that follow this individual, it just becomes very frustrating. And so it's not even worth the time, unfortunately. But that's, again, the problem with PetTube, where you get big enough, you're untouchable. And nobody's going to listen. They're, unfortunately, a lot of these people, I don't. I think a lot of them get into it for the right reasons, but they end up you know, losing that and they kind of believe their own hype, so to speak, and they stop listening to reason when people come on. They just take any type of criticism as a personal attack, and that makes it very difficult there. So, so yes, CJ, I believe the short answer is no, it isn't right. I think anybody that suffers a death, again, don't beat yourself over to over to the point where it drives you out of the hobby or drives you insane, but you really need to give it some thought, try to troubleshoot and figure out what you might be doing wrong if it, you know, and figure out if it is you. And yeah, it drives me nuts when I see that kind of thing. And again, that's why I'm not spending as much time as YouTube as I on YouTube as I have in the past, because I just don't need the added frustration because I do feel pretty helpless. I don't, plus being somebody that has a YouTube channel and is out there and, you know, does a lot in the hobby and interacts with a lot of hobby. I just don't need the negative energy coming back toward my way. And that's the honest God truth. I go on and say something that people don't like. All of a sudden, I'm getting a bunch of thumbs downs on my stuff, which undermines what I'm trying to do and and clouds you know the perspective of somebody that might be looking for a video because this did happen to me in the past where I made a comment. Next thing I know, it, my latest video is getting all kinds of thumbs down. And it was because their followers came over and just decided, well, you know what? This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And it, it, it's just not worth my time. So yeah, I, I agree 100%. It's frustrating. It's the nature of the beast, unfortunately, for YouTube and I think pet tubers in general. I think there's probably people out there from other, whether it be aquariums, people that keep aquariums, people that keep snakes or reptiles. I'm sure there are people out there that do a fantastic job that go on those channels and see stuff that they don't like, animals being kept poorly, animals being mistreated. And unfortunately, you get a big enough audience, there's really nothing you can do about it. So Again, let's. Uh, it, it's been kind of my thing, and and it's funny because I just talked about last. I think it was last week's episode talking about wanting to become a YouTuber, and just it, it should always be about the animals. The animals should always be first, and I think some people do a good job of it, and I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of that as they become more popular and feel the pressure to perform more and put more cool things out there to attract a larger audience. So. Anyway, moving on, what we're going to get into today, the main focus of this podcast, and I kind of covered this one, I think, back in March, so it's almost been a year. I touched upon it briefly, but moisture-dependent species. One of the things I've been doing, and I will be working on going ahead, and you guys know for a while I've been commenting that I need to get going on my website. That was my baby. That was the thing that got this all started. I take so much pride in that website because I honestly didn't think in a million years that a bunch of long-winded articles written about tarantulas would ever get any type of audience, and yet here we are. So I am back to that, people who have followed the website. And I do encourage people going ahead to, you can subscribe to the website. I'm going to be putting a lot of information up there. That's going to, I'm going to try to turn that into my hub moving ahead. So what's going to happen is I'm going to start trying to tie things all together. 
For example, I'm doing a podcast on moisture-dependent species today. I have an article already written on moisture-dependent species that I will be putting it up for folks who would rather enjoy, you know, would enjoy reading it or even printing it out. And then Billy and I will be shooting a video on it as well. And the idea is they all work well together. So for example, obviously I'm going to be able to talk more about it on the podcast than I would on a video. And for folks who are more, you know, they, they want the text version of it, you'll have that. Going ahead, I'm going to be doing a lot more of that, tying the things together. That's always been my goal. And I just kind of putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. Well, we're not playing around anymore. We're getting it going. We're going to tie it together. I've already started a page with all the species of tarantulas I have kept or am keeping. I think we're up to around 118 or so. And what I will be doing is going in and filling links into any articles I've done on them, any podcasts I've done on them, or any YouTube videos I've done on them. So all the information is in one place. And then the other thing I'm thinking of doing, which will probably start today, is I will be doing kind of a monthly newsletter on the website that shows any videos I did for that month, any podcasts I did that month, and any articles I did that month so people can keep track of them so they're all in one place. So again, kind of tying everything together. So today the topic is moisture-dependent species, and this is because I don't know what's going on out there, but I've received now three different people coming on talking about misting tarantulas and how I don't need to soak the substrate down. It's better to mist them, and misting's a good way. Now, let's get this right out of the way. When I first got into the hobby, misting was a, a dirty word when you talk about tarantula husbandry, especially if you're on the groups with serious hobbyists. And people would constantly say, you don't miss, you don't miss, you don't miss. And there was a couple reasons for that. Number one, it's disruptive of the spider. Number two, it's not the best way to rehydrate spiders or to keep, especially with moisture-dependent species. What happens is when you mist, all you do is soak down a spot of the surface of the substrate, maybe the plants, maybe the cork bark in there, whatever, but it evaporates very quickly. You're not worried when you're keeping moisture-dependent species, you're not worried about the surface. And I think a lot of us go wrong when we first get into the hobby because we think that the substrate has to stay moist at all times, and that's not the case. At least the surface of the substrate does not have to stay moist at all times. So I don't know what's been going on lately, but I've been getting pushback from people going, yeah, that's a waste of time. You don't have to add water like that. You can just spray it down. You can just miss. So I feel like I have to respond to it now because I don't agree. Again, back to the misting. I don't think misting is completely useless. And I want to throw that out there. I, I know there's people out there that, and I want to also put out there, there are people out there that do make the misting work. Can it work? Yes. It just means you need to be much, much more diligent. It means if like, if I were to just use misting in my house for these guys, I would be misting probably daily, which again, if you have the time for it, fantastic. The issue I have is that you're blasting air into that enclosure. We've talked about in the past that tarantulas, all those hairs are actually a very sensitive sense organ. And when you do that, you are going to be stressing out the spider for a little bit. Obviously they get over things very quickly, but if you're doing it daily or even every other day, it's more than you really should have to disturb your spider. It's more, you know, picture it. The spider's sitting there in standby mode and all of a sudden, all this air comes washing and water vapor comes gushing in. That's got to be difficult for them. So can you do it with just water additions and spraying? Yes. Let me get that out of the way. So anybody that's doing, you know, just the spraying or the misting doesn't get all upset at me now. Well, I've done it for years. I know it can be done, but I also don't think it's the best way to do it, especially when talking about moisture dependent species. So to kick this one off, one thing right off the bat, we're not talking about humidity here. Humidity, the H word, is pretty reviled in the hobby. I want to make this very clear because I've, I just had to do this on a comment on a video where somebody's like, you don't keep track of the humidity in your closures. I have actually kept track of humidity in one enclosure. It was when I first got into T-Sturmy and I was over-obsessing about, and I more it wasn't more... In this case, it wasn't trying to measure a precise humidity. I want to make this very clear. It wasn't like I was shooting for exactly 85% humidity. It was one of those little cheap, you know, zoom ed ones, but it just gave me an idea of how dry the inside of the enclosure was. So if the needle was a little above the 50%, I was happy. If the needle started dipping below, it meant I usually had this moisten the substrate. But I, since then, have never checked the humidity inside any other tarantula enclosures. I never do it. I have a hygrometer in my room. It's a hygrometer slash thermometer that I use to just kind of get a bead on is the humidity in the room too high? Is the humidity in the room too low? Because that does impact, and we'll get into this in a moment. 
it does impact how often I'm remoistening and how diligent I have to be, but that's about it. It's a ballpark. I look at it. If the humidity in the summer, I look up there and it says 80, I'm like, all right, you know what? We don't need to do too much moistening because it's already kind of humid here. If in the winter it starts dropping down in the 20s, you know what? Let's kick that humidifier on, make sure all the enclosures are properly moistened. So let's get that out of the way. We're not talking about humidity here. Basically, if you have a tarantula that needs it a little wetter, we call it moisture-dependent species. And for moisture-dependent species, the idea is they need moist substrate at all times. Now, and we talk about the misting not being the good thing. I like to use the term, and it's kind of silly, and I think people have followed me for a while. We all kind of giggle about it, but making it rain. The idea is we simulate a rain shower inside the enclosure. I have a bottle that I've burned holes in the top of, and basically I invert it like... Uh, Tip it over like you would a salt shaker, per se, because it's got little holes in it. And then I spray, I squirt water in there. It's it's pretty heavy. It's like a, a downpour, like a short downpour. And the trick with doing that is we're not trying to keep the top levels moist. This is where people mess up. They go in, they have their, I don't know, their pamphibedia species something or other. And they look down, they go, oh, the top of the substrate's all dried out. I got to moisten it. That's not what we're looking at when we do moist substrate. The idea of moist substrate is you want the bottom layers to stay moist. You want that slow, you know, release of moisture as it evaporates out. You want a situation where the spider can dig down to the moisture level that it needs, especially those burrowing species or fossorial species. You want them to be able to dig down and find that moisture level just like they would in the wild because we forget sometimes that the majority of species we keep find some type of burrow. And if they're in their burrow and it's starts drying out up top or it gets too hot up top, guess what they do? They dig a little deeper so they can get some more of that moist substrate so they don't dry out so they're not parched. So that's really important to remember. We're not looking at keeping the surface wet. I get a lot of photos for people going, hey, Tom, I'm trying to keep this C. lividus. Could you tell me if this enclosure looks okay? And I look in and it's like three or four inches of cocoa fiber, dry cocoa fiber that they have squirted water on the top, probably misted, and there's like a half an inch of the top that's wet and the bottom's dry. No, that's not okay. It should be the opposite. There should be a dry half an inch or an inch on the top and the bottom should be moist so the spider can dig down. That also helps prevent the molds and fungi that you don't want in the enclosure while that top layer stays dry. That's the trick. So I think a lot of people, they, and I did the same thing, just to throw that out there, and I talked about this in the previous podcast, when I had my LP, I'd heard they're moisture-dependent species. Every time the top of that thing got even the least bit dry, I would add more moisture. I'm surprised I didn't turn it into a swamp and kill the poor thing because I was over-obsessing on it. You want to look at the side of the enclosure And what you're going to see is when you moisten the substrate, if it's moistened correctly, the bottom layers, the moist layers will be darker than the dry layers. It's very, very simple. So what I do when I add moisture or when I think I need to add moisture, I pull the enclosure down, I'm doing a feeding, I look in the side. If that line that demarks the moist substrate dips too low, then it's time to add the water. So what is too low? (laughs) It's subjective, honestly. I usually think if it gets down below, like if we're talking about a third of it is getting dry, I usually consider it time to start adding moisture, but it could even go lower than that depending on how much substrate you got. So for example, if I have seven inches of substrate in an enclosure and that line has dipped down, like say to the three inch mark, that's still some decent area of moist substrate, but I'm probably thinking at that point that I'm going to add some more moisture. Now, when we spray the water in you can soak the top layers a little bit there's nothing wrong with that you know in the, in the wild they're going to get hit with rain showers they're going to go out some some of them will go out and use that as an opportunity to drink right from the cork bark or if you have sphagnum moss they'll come out there and drink i've noticed that my arboreal species will come out and drink sometimes when you spray everything down however What you want to do is when you put the water in the enclosure, aim the water down between the, basically the seam between the substrate and the sides of the enclosure. So what you want is that water to go down in between the glass or plastic, whatever type of enclosure you have, sink down and soak those bottom layers. That's the important part. So instead of just immediately, what I like to do is aim for corners. Aim for the sides. If you have a softer plastic, one trick is you bow, you pull the sides out a little bit, so you stretch the sides out a little bit so it makes a little gap in between the substrate and the side of the enclosure, and then you pour water right down through there. You go to the other side, do the same thing, and you'll watch the water run right down and start pooling, or not pooling, or absorbing into those bottom layers. That's the best, I found for me, that's the best way to do it. It works very well for me. It makes sure that the water gets to where it needs to go. So hopefully that helps some people that are like trying to, and I've been doing, answering this question a lot lately because I think it's the, 
This is more of an issue for folks that have heat during the colder winter months because things dry out much more quickly and you'll find that you're ending up adding water more than you are during say the summer months where it's more humid we'll get into that in a moment so i think that's the trick that's the most important thing when you add water really add water make it rain and get that water down the sides and into the lower levels don't worry so much about the upper levels especially if you have should have a water dish up there anyway and then one thing you can do for moisture dependent species little trick Bigger water dishes, they're not going to drown. You can put a big old water dish in there. I've done two water dishes. I have my Pamphibedius antinus, who has a rather large enclosure and probably not as much much depth of substrate as I would like, and we'll get into that just in a moment. And so what I did to kind of compensate for it is added that extra large water dish that kind of gives it another place to get a drink, keeps some moisture, keeps things from evaporating as quickly in there. Now, another thing we need to talk about is the setup of the tarantulas. Now, whether you're talking, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a fossorial an arboreal or a terrestrial species, if it's moisture dependent, one thing you're going to want to consider when you set up its enclosure is substrate depth. I know there's a lot of things out there with saying that basically, well, terrestrials, you only need to give them a couple inches of substrate. Well, with some species, especially the arid ones that aren't going to do any digging, yes, you can get away with a couple inches. But you don't really want to be a substrate scrooge when you're talking about some of these moisture dependent species, because the deeper the substrate, the easier it is for you to maintain the moisture you want in that substrate. So for example, if I put into it, we'll, we'll use my Pamphibedius antinus for an example. I've only got about three to two inches of substrate in there, depending on the, the side of the enclosure. It's kind of made to be like a little hill on one side where her burrow is. When I add water to that, even when the water soaks all the way down to the bottom, it's only about a band of maybe an inch of moist substrate. That evaporates very, very quickly. So I have to be a little more diligent in making sure it doesn't completely dry out. Now, let's go to my Pamphibedius species, Arania polito. Polito, geez, I'm having a hard time speaking today. When I go and add uh, moisture to hers, when I originally set her up, she was smaller and she had about four and a half, five inches of substrate. When I add the water in, it soaks down to the bottom. It takes a lot longer for that water to evaporate. That's what you want. So if you're setting up a species, if you have a Pamphibedius, I know you'll read that they're terrestrial and you'll go, oh, I can put them in a nice shallow container. Well, if you really want to keep track of that moisture and make it easier to keep track of that moisture level and make sure that the substrate stays moist, you're going to want to get it in something that will allow four inches of substrate or so, maybe even five, whatever you can fit in there. That makes it easier because that soil helps trap in that moisture, whatever type of substrate you use. And we'll get into substrates in a moment as well. So that's something that should always be a consideration. I've had folks, and, and what drives me nuts is when folks will set up the moisture dependent arboreal species and they'll go oh it's arboreal so I only need to put in an inch of substrate no you don't want to just put in an inch of substrate put a few inches of substrate in there because that's going to help retain that moisture so you have those even though it's not going to burrow it's going to retain that moisture and keep that enclosure from drying out completely that's the trick so again is it wrong to give a terrestrial species moisture dependent terrestrial species more shallow substrate no we're not going to say it's wrong does it make more sense to give them more depth because it's going to mean less work for you and less chance of error like that accidentally drying out or something? Yes, it is. So again, I don't like to ever deal in absolutes and I don't want people who are sitting there right now with a tarantula on only a couple inches of substrate and pouring water in every few days to go, Tom, you're an idiot. I do this. It works fine. It may totally work fine for you. I'm just trying to make it easier for people to not obsess over those moisture requirements. So now that we've covered how to rehydrate, you're using that making it rain, you're pouring it down the sides, you're getting those bottom layers nice and moist. Now we're going to talk a bit about which substrates we should use if we're moving into moisture-dependent species. Now, I often get asked by people on my videos when I mention the fact that I don't, I don't use a lot of cocoa fiber anymore. I went through a stage where I didn't use it at all. Now I use it for some things, for mostly juveniles and slings, where I'm going to throw the stuff away in a couple months when I rehouse them anyway, because it's a little less expensive than the bioactive stuff I've been using. But I was asked when I started making the switch. The big pivotal moment for me is when I started keeping moisture-dependent species, because unfortunately I found with the cocoa fiber, although it's obviously readily available, it's you know easily procured because they 
sell it on Amazon, they sell it in pet stores. And if you're rehydrating, if you're using a moisture dependent or rehousing a moisture dependent species, when you rehydrate it, it's already comes moist, which makes it very convenient. I found that unfortunately it can be a little troublesome for burrowers. And now again, there's a big thing out there where people say you can't use it at all because the burrows collapse. Not necessarily true. If you pack this stuff down well and the spider goes in, you keep it moist and the spider goes in, what it'll do is use webbing to reinforce the walls. So really, can it collapse? Yeah. Is there instances where things, they dig a little too much and it collapses? Yes. But the spider quickly redigs, rewebs and fixes it. So it's not as big of a deal as some people would like to make out. It's just not the most ideal substrate for a fossorial species. Now, if you add in a fossorial moisture-dependent species, that's where its limitations really start to show up because what, unfortunately what you end up with is when you start it off, it absorbs water beautifully. That's one of the best traits of the cocoa fiber, I think, is that if you put a bunch of cocoa fiber in a bin and squirt water in it, it sucks it up like a sponge. Unfortunately, it also gives up the water just as quickly. So I found that when I started keeping moisture-dependent species, and originally it was my C. libidus that we keep that keeps popping up quite a bit, I had her in an enclosure with the substrate. I'd moisten it down. I couldn't go a, a few days without it starting to dry up really badly. I had a hard time keeping it moist, especially in the winter when it got particularly dry. And this was before I was running a humidifier, so the air did get very, very dry in there. And then I went into my Kilobrachis guangziensis, set her up in some, and found it was drying too quickly for my taste. So I shifted away from it. So can cocoa fiber be used? Yes, it can. Can it be used for fossorials? Yes, it can. Can it be used for fossorial moisture-dependent species? Yes, it can. Just no that you're going to have to be much more diligent and careful with to make sure that it stays moist because it will evaporate more quickly especially when the heat's on in those warmer winter or colder winter months now the next one i that pops up i use for quite some time and do use on occasion now that would be topsoil, very inexpensive, much denser, has a better mixture. Cocoa fiber is just ground up cocoa fiber. Topsoil will have little grains of sand in it, dirt of different sizes, sometimes a little mulchy-like material. I loved using it, used it for quite some time. The good thing with cocoa fiber is if it starts off moist, it holds on to that moisture for quite some time. So I didn't have the problem with evaporation and the substrate drying out that I did with the cocoa fiber. The downside to it is the quote-unquote mudding, where you go to re-add water and the water just puddles on the top. The top layer gets very muddy and it doesn't soak down and percolate through to the lower levels. That was the issue I had was rehydrating it can be more difficult. However, for those experiencing that problem, one remedy is to add vermiculite or chopped up sphagnum moss to your mixture. People will also add sand to it, which depending on the size of the grains of sand will allow the water to better percolate down through the soil and build up on the bottom of those bottom layers and keep those bottom layers moist. And when I used topsoil, I did mix it with vermiculite and it was usually, depending on the species, it was usually around a 60, 40 or 70, 30 mixture, depending on what I needed and how moist I want the substrate to remain or how much I want it to be able to rehydrate it much more easily. 70-30 probably, 60-40 around there is usually what I ended up adding. And I would buy the vermiculite. I would not buy the little bags of it. I would get the local farm supply shop has the big bales of it and it's so much it's like 35 bucks and it lasts forever so for those of you who want to use vermiculite that's a i I find it's a great alternative a great additive to kind of add to that topsoil to add to the ability of it to absorb the moisture much better so you don't get that mudding now third substrate that people use all the time peat peat can be fantastic when you soak peat down i mean Peat came from old bogs. When you soak it down, it's thick. It holds on to that moisture really, really well. The issues, again, number one, I found that it can be difficult to rehydrate once it dries out. So when you start seeing, and those of you have used peat before, will recognize this. When it dries out, it shrinks. You start to get like a little gap around the edge of the enclosure because the peat has kind of shrunk into itself. And I found at that point, it doesn't, when you pour water in, again, you can get the mudding and the pooling. The other issue I've had with peat is when it starts off, it is very, 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 very dusty. So that's something to think about right there is the fact that when you first start out, make sure you're working like in a garage or outside when you're adding the moisture to it, because while you're mixing up, there's going to be dust everywhere. It's one of those ones you blow your nose later and it's a nightmare, but it works great. And it's supposedly more acidic than regular topsoil, which supposedly helps cut down on the fungus you get. It supposedly helps mold. I say supposedly because I've heard great things about it, but I've also experienced mold and mushrooms in my peat. So it, 
It's, if it works for you, it works for you. I've used it before. It works great. It's very inexpensive again. And like the topsoil, mix it with some chopped up sphagnum moss, mix it with some vermiculite, and you can get a better consistency. Or mix all three together. I've played around with mixtures that way, and I've gotten some great soil compositions that I can use in my enclosures that hold on to the moisture but also rehydrate well. So feel free to play around with it, see what works for you, but keep in mind that, you know, some of them are a little better for the the moisture enclosures than others. Now, one of the things I've been using lately is bioactive substrate. I get mine from the BioDo, but there's a lot of different kinds out there, and those tend to be really well constructed and put together specifically to hold moisture and to absorb moisture because when you're talking about a bioactive enclosure, a lot of times you're talking about very moist enclosures. So they absorb the water usually better. They have charcoal in them. They have sand in them. They have cut off sphagnum moss, uh, cut up sphagnum moss, mulch. Just the composition is such that when you add water, it tends to soak down through and it tends to hold water well. So if you want to spend a little more money, the bioactive substrates are actually quite good. Now, again, Going back to the sphagnum moss and vermiculite, those can be added to just about anything. I know people that also add larger chunks of rocks or pieces of cork bark in there to kind of aerate and allow spots that the water can kind of trickle down in between the cork bark or rock and the substrate to, again, allow it to percolate down through. But it, it, it there's a lot of room for creativity as far as substrates, and I think a lot of us, they get into the hobby. We start using one thing. We start playing with others. It's kind of like the found enclosures when you get into it and you start going to Walmart or the container store and just saying, hey, this would make a great juvenile enclosure. This would make a great sling enclosure. And then we experiment, figure out what works, what doesn't. The same rules apply to substrate. It's a lot of fun to mix substrate. I've had people go, why do you want to spend all the time doing that? Because it's fun. Because I enjoy looking at my son and I years ago, he's 17 now or going to be 17, but years ago, he and I for a science experiment just played with all the different types of substrates and additives to see what A, would absorb water faster and B, what would hold onto water longer. And we had a blast doing it. And then we ended up using it afterwards. That's how I got my topsoil vermiculite mix because that was the one that worked the best. And you add a little peat in, worked even better. It was a lot of fun. So feel free to experiment with them, see what works for you, do some experiments. If you've got kids, it's fun for a science experiment when you're trying to you know talk about how to you know irrigate soil or whatever. It can be a really fun thing to do. Again, sand is the other one. I've done some stuff with sand. It didn't quite work the way I wanted it to, but admittedly, I was just playing around with it. Somebody told me I had some white playground sand. I did, and it didn't have the effect I thought it was going to have. It didn't work as well as the vermiculite did, but I'm sure people out there that use sand can chime in and tell me that I'm using the wrong stuff and tell me what I should use because I do notice that a lot of the bioactive enclosures do have, or bioactive substrates do have that sand in them that it's supposed to help the water kind of percolate down through. Now, as far as rehydrating, this is kind of off topic, but on topic a little bit. As far as rehydrating with smaller slings, and this kind of goes for any sling, not just moisture-dependent ones, but the moisture-dependent ones can be particularly scary because they are much more fragile at that size. They don't have that waxy coat on them that kind of keeps them from eva- or keeps them from drying out. But as a rule of thumb, most slings anyway should be kept on moist substrate or be given some moist substrate. And again, the same rules apply. You don't worry so much about the upper levels. It's those lower levels. The majority of slings will burrow, even some of those so-called, I shouldn't say so-called, they are arboreal species, but as slings, they will burrow. So I'm thinking about the Salmopeus, Tapanakinius. Uh, Peacelotheria, all species that are eventually are, you know, they're arboreal species, but as slings, they will burrow. So basically, rule of thumb, the majority of slings are going to need that moist substrate, and it's the same trick. You want to make sure that band doesn't go too low. They're going to burrow. They're going to burrow to the moist substrate. I've had species of slings that I've put into little dram vials, and the substrate wasn't moist enough, and they just sat on top and didn't burrow. Then I would make a little starter burrow and pour some water in there, soak the bottom layers, boom, burrowed right down to the bottom, right off the bat. And that was an, uh, the most profound instance of that I ever saw was with an Afonapelma annex that I basically set up. I had the substrate too dry. It sat on the top. It wasn't eating. It wasn't doing anything. I made a little hole down the side, put some water down the hole, came back the next day. It burrowed the hole all the way down to the bottom of the thing, whole big burrow. The whole bottom of it was a burrow. Like it dug amazingly overnight just because I added water. That's a very, that was a huge, a huge learning experience for me. So with the slings, the trick is you don't want to flood them. You don't want to add too much moisture because those little sling enclosures can get very stuffy very quickly. And we don't want a situation where we flood it and it's sitting there in these dank, you know, really unhealthy conditions for a while. So the trick is I use either a pipette or you can use a syringe. And what you want to do is direct the water down the side of the enclosure, again, between the dirt and the side of the enclosure, the plastic, whatever 
whatever it may be, glass, if you have it in a glass bottle, and direct it so that it goes the opposite side of the burrow. You don't want to flood the burrow. So find where the sling is, use your little syringe, your pipette, and direct the moisture down the other side and carefully shoot it down in the bottom layer so you can moisten down the bottom layers. It doesn't need to be the top. If you're concerned about the sling, like if it's not burrowing, being able to find moisture, little pieces of sphagnum moss. I like the... New Zealand sphagnum moss myself. I, I buy that by the bag. I find it works great. So you put a little cu- couple of sprigs of that in there and you can gently mist that down. And again, I do like misting for the size of slings and closure, sling enclosures and stuff. You can do a little misting there, but that'll give them another alternative, a place to get something to drink, especially if you're using an enclosure that is too small to reasonably permit the use of a water dish. So that's my trick for slings. It's really pretty simple. I have a bunch of moisture dependent slings now and that's how I do it. I go in there with a little pipette. I even have a syringe now. You go in there, squirt the water right where you need it. And again, watch that band of darker substrate that demarcates where the you know moist substrate is compared to the drier stuff up top. And if that line gets too low, it's time to add some more water to it. Now, we can't go talking about keeping moist substrate without talking about one of the most important aspects of keeping a moisture-dependent species, which is ventilation. You need good ventilation. Preferably, you'll hear hear cross-ventilation thrown around quite a bit, and that means basically instead of just having vents on the top of the enclosure, which allows the water to evaporate much, 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 much more quickly, and I've done some experiments with this. Trust me, the open-top enclosures will dry out much faster than ones with cross-ventilation, which allows air to go through the enclosure, basically taking fed, you know, potentially fetid air out with it. So it means you're going to put your vents on the sides of the enclosure. Back in the day, I used to put them on two sides. I now have them on four sides. That allows, especially if you have a room where you've got some airflow in it, a fan, it allows the air to kind of go on through. It keeps mold down. It keeps the insides of the enclosures from getting too stuffy. One thing you do not want to do, and this is something I believe is in the tarantula keeper's guide, or it's, it's a lot of old literature about tarantulas. You'll find people talking about restricting the ventilation because you're trying to keep things quote-unquote humid again there is the h word that's a no-no and i've read things like people have told me yeah it's winter time here i don't really worry so much about moistening it because i just put saran wrap over the top of the enclosure yeah that's a good way to end up with a dead spider unfortunately because the dank enclosures the you know when the air becomes stuffy and nasty that creates a, a like a petri dish for bad bacteria and things that can kill your spider that's almost worse than letting it dry out it probably is worse than letting it dry out and again we often talk about the therophosa blondi where folks had a terrible time keeping them for years they couldn't keep those humidity levels up to 90 degrees they were filling the tanks full of water they were keeping everything wet they were covering the tops up with ceram wrap well they were probably killing the tarantulas because the insides of those enclosures were just nasty and full of bacteria and just stuffy you need airflow so do not restrict the ventilation now if you get enclosures like the for example the critter keepers have ventilation around the band of the lid around the outside the perimeter of the lid but also the top of the lid is completely open I do sometimes block off the top because I don't want the air to just completely you know that's a place where the substrate will dry out very, very quickly because it evaporates much more quickly with the top open. I will usually use some duct tape or something or contact tape to block that off, but I keep those side vents open and I will often go in with a Dremel tool and put new holes, ventilation holes in the actual clear part of the container to make sure there's a lot of cross ventilation. There is a lot of ventilation. Now, if you're doing bioactive enclosures, if you have live plants in there, the thought process is you don't need as much ventilation because the plants are producing oxygen too, which is helping keep that environment you know, from becoming toxic and stuffy. But again, the trick is be reasonable about it. A lot of us use, and this is where it gets confusing, a lot of us will use the exoterra enclosures like the nanos or the exoterra nano larges or whatever. And those generally are vented on the top and there isn't a lot of side ventilation. I've used them a while without incident. I do make sure that front vent is always open and clear. There's one under the door. If you have a fan going in the room, that helps. That will keep it in that type of situation what's supposedly supposed to happen is the air comes through that front vent and kind of pushes the bad air out the top where the ventilation is there i found those work pretty well again i bought for christmas billy got me some uh, glass cutting bits so i can go through and eventually experiment with cutting holes in the sides and putting cross ventilation in those haven't gotten to it yet but it can work but the trick is just don't you you have to make sure there's ventilation you have to make sure that those cages can breathe or else you're going to end up in a situation where you're going you're going to have a death trap for your spider. 
Now, one of the other things that tends to cause some confusion is, and I do this a lot and I never explain it, and I realize I'm probably negligent too, is when people talk about or keepers talk about give your spider a moist corner. And I will have people email me or message me, hey, Tom, you say keep a moist corner. So does that mean just like a little teeny corner of it? Or should I do like a quarter of it? Or does it mean a third of the enclosure? And that's a great question. I don't think there's really a definitive, um, you know, amount of surface area you need to cover when you say a moist corner. Basically what that means is don't worry about keeping all of the lower levels of substrate moist. When I say moist corner, what I do is I use that same trick where I make it rain, but just in a corner of the enclosure, maybe a quarter of it, maybe a sixth of it, depending on the side of the enclosure, but I give it a moist spot. And this is usually used for species that may not need the moist substrate, but you may find as they mature, they still prefer. And again, you can always test this out because if you give your tarantula a moist spot in the substrate, and it will it craves moist substrate a lot of times you'll find them sitting on that spot that's a good indication that you want to moisten things down a little bit more maybe not just a moist corner maybe do half the substrate moist but generally speaking when you're talking about moist corner you're not worrying about keeping all the lower level of substrate moist so for example for my kilobrachy species guangxiensis right now the lower probably four inches of that substrate three or four inches is moist right now with it becoming more dry as it goes up top and that's the entire surface area of that substrate in the lower region of it now, talk about my uh, Formictopus cancerides females. I have them in enclosures where about a quarter of the substrate's moist. You know, the same thing. I try to get the stuff moist underneath, maybe spray the top a little bit, keep the top a little bit moist. And they don't really show any preference, but I've continued to do so just in case. So that would be a moist corner. It's not a, you know, standard unit of measurement. It just kind of means you're not keeping all of the substrate moist. Now, for final thoughts, say somebody, we'll, we'll pick our worst case scenario here, because again, I never like to deal in absolutes. I never like to tell people you can't do this. I, I mean, if there's something I feel like is black and white, this is wrong, this is right, I'll say so. But this is an instance where it's not so much right or wrong, it's what makes more sense, what's going to mean less work for you, what's going to be less upsetting or potentially stressful to the spider. Let's look at a worst case scenario. You have a moisture dependent terrestrial, you have it on a couple inches of cocoa fiber, and you're using only misting for soil hydration. Would that be wrong? Short answer, no, it would not. It just means that you would have to be much more diligent in making sure that your specimen doesn't dry out and experience dry conditions. So cocoa fiber, again, evaporates very, very quickly, I found. Uh, cocoa, only a couple inches of cocoa fiber. I'm telling you, and if the, your air is, if your outside air is dry, it's going to suck the moisture out of that in a few days max. Even with a water disc, I found it evaporates very, very quickly. And if you're using misting, it means you're not getting that moisture penetrating really into the soil. Like even if you, like with misting, you'd have to soak the heck out of the top of that stuff and hope that it dripped down through. In most cases, what you're going to end up with is a half inch on the top that's completely saturated. It's not going to soak down through. So is that ideal? absolutely not it's probably the worst case scenario as far as keeping a moisture dependent species but with a lot of diligence a keeper could make it work so i want to make that clear for folks that are out there using misting that are going to kind of freak out do i think that makes a lot of sense to keep something like that no i don't especially if we know that there's easier ways to do it and better ways to do it i have heard folks go well it just means you need to take care of your spiders better it shouldn't be a issue having to go in there and add more moisture more often that's part of taking care of them Eh, why add more work? I mean, I understand we don't want to cut corners, but I wouldn't say this is cutting corners. This is just being smart. I would say that with the substrates that don't hold on to the moisture as long, and if you're using spraying, you're not only going to have to add more often, there's more potential that you're going to forget a day or you're going to have an extra dry day and it's going to evaporate and the spider's going to end up enduring dry conditions because it's not set up in a more ideal way, if that makes sense. So I think, can it work? Yes. Does it make sense? No, it does not. Not necessarily, but I'm not going to argue with somebody that, because I know somebody will come forward and say, I've kept them like this my whole life and never had an issue. Great for you. That's awesome. I'm not going to argue that. It's working for you. You have a system. I think for most people, especially people that are just getting into the hobby, that's going to add much more stress. And the whole point of this podcast, honestly, is to kind of alleviate some of that stress that comes with keeping moisture-dependent species. I've had many conversations with people over the years that don't want to get into them because they have horror stories. hear horror stories about them. They're like, afraid they're going to stress out. And I do think there's going to be, when anytime you keep a different type of spider, a different type of species, there's going to be some anxiety. There's going to be some stress. But we want to keep it down to a minimum. I will tell you, nobody's going to be any worse than I was when I first got into my first moisture-dependent species and was obsessing over them. We all do it. But hopefully this will help make it a little easier for people to go. Hopefully some people out there are like, oh, good, this is exactly what I'm doing. This is right. 
Hopefully some people out there have been using misting and they go, wow, I didn't even think of this. I'll, I'll try this make it rain thing that he's talking about. And, you know, again, hopefully people that aren't even getting into the hobby sometime find this podcast and go, wow, okay, that sounds really doable. Now, one final thought before we go on, and this is incredibly important. It gets left out a lot of times when we're talking about moisture dependent species. For folks that live in areas with a natural high relative humidity, my buddies from the Philippines, uh, I have a couple of buddies from Malaysia, places where it's going to be be humid outside anyway, you already have the perfect environment for a tropical or moisture-dependent species. Your your natural weather is is great for it, your natural climate. So yes, it can be overkill if you moisten these guys too much. This is one of these situations. I had somebody from the Philippines, I wish I could remember his name because I it was awesome. He's like, you know what? I'm reading your guide right here and it says you got to keep them really moist, but I'm in the Philippines. It's pretty humid here right now. Would that be overkill? And I'm like, Yes, it absolutely would be, and that needs to be stated. If you're in a place where it's super humid, A, the enclosures aren't going to evaporate that quickly, so you don't have to go overboard. A lot of times, you're loading up that moisture on the lower levels to keep them from drying out too quickly. You're not going to have that issue in a place where your humidity is 85 95% most of the time. So you want to be a little more careful with adding humidity. This might be one of those places where if you have a moisture-dependent species, you only moisten down a corner, even with some of the fossorial ones. You know, keep a more moist corner, a couple, you know, a third of the enclosure moist, but let the less the rest of it dry out so you don't overdo it. And I will say that I live in a state where it gets very, very humid during the summer. The humidity in my transfer room goes up quite a bit. Some of my more arid species are climbing the enclosure walls because they don't like it. And in those instances, I'm not fixated on keeping those enclosures dry. I, t- I mean, wet. I tend to let them dry out quite a bit. I will keep the water dishes full. I'll do a little misting. And again, the misting can be great for some of those species. You know, just a little burst, a little burst, like a little rain shower pass through is a little burst. They can go out and get some moisture off the plants, off of the cork bark. I know my arboreal species, like the Vicularia species, Carabina versicolor, and so my Pisolotheria will go siphon it right off the glass, which gives them an alternative to the water dish, but I don't overdo it as far as moisture in the summer because it's not needed. We already have a moist enough environment just in my household that we don't need to be quite so diligent with keeping things moist. So that'll do it for this one. Hopefully I covered all the points. I did go back and listen to the other podcast to make sure that this I didn't cover all this stuff before. So this would kind of be an addendum to that. I think that podcast was more about somebody was saying that you could keep them all dry. And we kind of had a conversation about the fact that no, some of these we really do need to keep with some moisture. But I think how to keep that, the moisture dependent species, that's things that cause that that's one of those topics that scares a lot of people and causes some confusion. So hopefully I was able to break it down in a way that will take away some of that mystique around it, take away some of that confusion, make it a lot, the hobby a lot easier and less stressful. So with that, we conclude this episode of Tom's Big Spiders, the podcast. Oh, that sounds really super formal. Again, I want to remind people the website is going to be much more active. I'm enjoying writing again. I love writing. That's what got me into this. Uh, I used to actually write fiction years ago and I used to do reviews for horror movies and stuff like that and articles for magazines for like horror movies and stuff. Love writing. And that's what kind of got me into this. It was a way to kind of scratch that itch as far as writing is concerned, I want to get back to that more. And I've had a lot of folks go, yeah, I, I love the... the love the YouTube stuff, love the podcast, kind of miss the article. So don't worry, they're coming back and we are going to use the site to kind of tie things together. And so if for folks, I want to try to find some way to put like, I, I don't know, we'll figure something out. I want some kind of like central hub that I can go and answer questions with because it's just getting really difficult bouncing around all the different things. So we'll see if there's some way I can coordinate that. But again, head over to the site, feel free to, you know, check out some, I just posted up the Cedar Lingi husbandry article and I believe it was Harpacteria pulchropes I think that was the other one I posted up so anybody that you know you listen to the videos and you're like man I wish I could have something I could take notes on go on feel free cut and paste print it out I don't care if that's what they're there for for people to use and uh, hopefully it's useful and then of course I'm over on YouTube we got to shoot that moisture video today which uh, still trying to figure out how to do and make not the most boring thing on the planet so we'll Billy and I will be doing that later I also we shot the unboxing video for the stuff Billy got me for my birthday Tanya threw in some amazing things. I had some stuff coming myself. It was a ridiculously impressive box of spiders, but I'm almost reluctant to put it up because it was like so ridiculously impressive that I don't want to be like, hey, look at I'm bragging about my spider collection. It's just I haven't gotten any in quite some time, and now I'm looking into keeping some kind of obscure ones so I can do some husbandry stuff with them for folks that are looking to get them in the future. So we'll see if we'll put that one up. I'm kind of reluctant to put it up right now. We'll see if I can put some kind of spin on it that I don't look like some jerk that's just bragging about what I got for my birthday. So anyway, that'll do it for this episode. As always, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you guys all next time.